Wired into technology transformation, this is the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Hello, listener, and welcome. This is episode 25 of the Digital Bulletin Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and joining you and I on this voyage, we have our esteemed panel. First, let me introduce a familiar voice to pod regulars. It's Digital Bulletin Content Director James Henderson. James, how are you? Good afternoon. I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've just realised we've reached a quarter of a century of episodes, so um, something to celebrate, right? Yeah, and it's so it's a quarter of a century of episodes, and I believe we're just about as we're recording now. I believe when we're finished recording, the new issue of Tech for Good. I don't want to pull one of your plugs off you here, but one of the new issues of Tech for Good will be out, and I believe that'll be the, our fiftieth ever publication that we've put live. So, two causes for celebration. There we go. Some serious milestones being reached here. And to mark the special occasion, we have a very special guest, Victoria Neeson, CEO of DreamTech. Hello, Victoria. How are you? I'm very well, guys. Good morning from um, from from New York. It's a nice autumn day here today. It's lovely to be with you. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. And the, the joy of podcasting in, in 2021 is that we can do these things sat in a virtual meeting room. So it's fantastic to have you all the way from across the pond. We're in the far um, less celebrated city of Norwich here in the UK but <laughs> nothing wrong with Norwich <laughs> <laughs> now Victoria is here for a deep dive discussion about her career the video industry the role of video in our personal and professional lives and to share her experiences as a female leader in tech later on James and I will review our Western Union case study as well but before all of that here is your news roundup Facebook has made headlines this month in many ways, as it usually does, of course, but one story related to what we talk about is its development of what it's calling egocentric artificial intelligence. This tech aims to understand and replicate first-hand human experiences as opposed to AIs, which commonly interpret things from a third-person perspective. So interesting development there from Facebook to keep an eye on. Elsewhere, we've seen the likes of Amazon and Google convene at the White House for a conference on the future of quantum computing. They joined representatives from the Office of Science and Technology Policy to discuss critical applications of this nascent technology. This month also saw IBM announce ambitious plans to skill 30,000 people by 2030. It says it will do so by creating 170 new academic and industry partnerships. We've also seen BT launch its own cybersecurity platform. The US become the world's largest Bitcoin mining centre and Pat Gelsinger deal another Brexit blow to Britain by saying that Intel won't build any of its new chip factories over here. Now, as you know by now, listener, you can find the best reporting on those stories and many, many more via the bulletin on digitalbulletin.com. But now the focus turns to our guest. And Victoria, thank you again. Thanks so much for, for joining us. And let's get straight into it. Maybe you can tell the listener a bit about your own career you know maybe a bit of a potted history of, of, of your background absolutely yes so i'm victoria neeson i'm currently the ceo of dream tech we're a global video production company um my career started in video conferencing actually back in the 90s and um, so video conferencing did exist in the corporate world but it was very different to how it looks today um, and I was working for Reuters, which was a huge news agency. Um, now I believe it's called Thomson Reuters. 
Um, and at the time, um, Reuters was spending a, an obscene amount of money on travel. And the CEO of the company decided that he wanted to start looking at technology to see if we could he could reduce that travel cost. Um, so uh, one of uh, Reuters' customers actually was, was SmithKline Beecham, and they had in, installed a video conferencing network and had had a lot of success. So he decided he wanted to look at the look at the same sort of success story. So uh, we we started the project and. We started looking at how we could implement video conferencing in some key hubs. So we started with just four main hubs in Europe, um, Australia, and um, the US. And, um, and it actually was very successful. We, we went out to tender. We, we selected a supplier called Picturetel, who was an old video conferencing company, brought in the systems, started introducing it to the, to the employees. And within about nine months, we actually had reduced the travel budget quite significantly. So it was a huge success story. And I ended up working at Reuters for eight years, becoming the, the head of video conferencing and building out a global network. What did that feel like at the time, Victoria? Was it a bit of a it was a bit of a it was a step into the unknown because you know I wasn't I didn't have a huge amount of experience in tech, and it was my first position in tech. So um, it was it was it was very challenging, but also very rewarding. And we won a couple of competitions. Um, we won us some awards about the innovative use of video conferencing. So yeah, um, it was a it was a, a really really positive experience for me, and also a great success success story for Reuters um, and and uh, and the use of video. And we started to sort of explore. And we didn't want to sort of mandate people use video conferencing because people still wanted to travel. Um, but we started to suggest that they actually just supplemented some of the travel with, with video. And, and we kind of sort of put a bit of a spin on it about it being much more of a collaborative way of working. And that I think was, was part of the success story. We weren't forcing people to use it. We were just saying, instead of traveling once a quarter or three times a quarter just you try and use the technology and, and that's how that's how it grew and you said it was your first kind of steps into tech it's amazing how careers take shape isn't it because that is the route you ended up going it is, down. because it wasn't an intentional thing for me and yeah. um, you know I didn't sort of you know leave college and decide that I was going to go into tech it just it just happened that way and I fell into it yeah tell us about dream tech then what does dream tech do and obviously that relates very much to what what you're talking about there yes so dream tech is so now um when we first began so we're 20 years old we first began um in the music business actually one of our founders was a musician and he started the company building uh studios for musicians um in the uk um then started getting into post-production and um was working with some sort of big musicians like jimmy Choir. built we built out the first studio for Jumeirah Choir in the UK. We then started working as an Apple reseller. We were the first UK reseller of Apple in, in, in Europe, um, which was an exciting move for us. And, um, and then we got into post-production. So we were working with a lot of post-production houses in Soho, helping them with post-production workflows using Apple infrastructure. So that was the beginning. Um, and then around about 11 years ago, I actually joined Dream, Dream Tech from my, my role working at Dresden Bank. So 
when I left Reuters, I went to a bank um, and I ended up running a um, multimedia division for the, for the bank, which was a global investment bank. Um, and I joined DreamTech from there. I actually brought DreamTech in as a vendor because we had built our own studio in the UK and we were starting to push out our own content. Um, and we bought all of this wonderful Apple hardware, but we had no idea how to use it. So we brought DreamTech in as a vendor to help navigate our way through the post-production process with, with the hardware that we had invested in. And that's how I got introduced to DreamTech. Um, so then I decided to, to leave the bank and actually join DreamTech as an equity partner. Um, and, um, and I brought sort of the corporate business to the company. Um, so we started working with a few, a few more corporate companies. Um, and we now, we now have a very different business. Uh, it's changed quite dramatically over the last 10 years, even more so, I'd say, over the last four to five years. So we're now a video production company, but we have three divisions within the business. Video production is a big part of what we do. And we have global production teams, you know, producers, directors, crews. Um, working with our customers, um, filming video content, um, but also getting creative and producing creative video content. Uh, com content. We have um, what we call our managed service business or our talent business, which is where we actually provide creative and production talent to our customers. And that can be on a full-time basis, part-time basis, or on a flex basis. And one of the biggest customers we have in that space is Facebook. So we actually have a considerable amount of production staff working at Facebook's offices, providing production services. Um, and then the last division is what we call systems integration, but it's more of a technical function. And this is, I think, where we differ a little bit from other production companies, because we have technician, you know, technologies in our DNA um, and have been from, from day one. Um, so the technology division, actually, we actually build our own products um, and we have our own engineering teams. Um, and that's been a big part of DreamTech's success story and growth story over the over the years. A really fascinating background there, Victoria, and a real insight into, into how a company can grow and how it sprouts in different directions. Again, the, the tech element there, and you're, you're a global company as well. James, I'm going to bring you in here. Um, you're, I mean, we know video now is is so pervasive, isn't it, in, in our in our personal lives and our professional lives. But listening to Victoria talk about her time at Reuters when they were taking those first steps into into video conferencing, it sounds like another world, doesn't it? Yeah, and in a sense, it is. If you if you if I can remember, you know, where using sort of computers twenty years ago, and the idea of even loading up a, a, an image, let alone a video, was it was painstaking. You know, when you think about the connections you're working off. Um, and the quantum leap we've seen over the last 15 or 20 years means, yeah, video is pervasive. And I feel like it's become sort of the, the default mode in terms of how we consume information or media, both in our, in our private lives and our personal lives, but also, you know, in business as well. And we know as a, as a business publisher and as a, as a creative agency that video is often, you know, one of, if not the most important component of what we do for our clients. You know, often when they when there's repeat business that they come back and say, you know, we we really like this element of it. Can you create more video for us, maybe that we can use from a social standpoint, more bite-sized stuff. So, 
we know how important it is and, and, we, and, and you and I are both from sort of what we you would class as traditionally editorial backgrounds you know our original skills were in the, the written words um but we, we've had to you know navigate that and pivot and learn new skills because you know increasingly I don't think you can just rely on that you you have to have this this skill set that includes multimedia skills and video and audio visual um and, and we know that increasingly graduates are coming into the workplace equipped with all of that as well you know they've got this swiss army knife of, of different skills and and video is always one of the most important ones right so it's it's become i think the the, the best way to elicit emotion in, in people but also how to get across important information too i think we know that over the last couple of years with the pandemic, um, the messaging has been hugely important into, into how we react to it and how we go about containing it. Um, and I think we know that people are far more likely to watch a, a two minute information video compared to you know, reading five or 600 words about it, for example. Um, so yeah, I guess that in a nutshell is just agreeing with you. you know, it has become pervasive, it has, if you like, become you know, arguably the, the leading way that that people want to communicate or be communicated to. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And it's funny because, you know, obviously being in the video industry, you know, we were waiting for this to happen, right? And there was a period of time where we were saying, this is gonna happen. Yeah. And it took, you know, to be fair, it took, it took a long time. You know, it didn't happen as quickly as we wanted it to. But then I think we started to see like the likes of YouTube. So we, you know, Dream Tech were also involved with YouTube. We actually built the first YouTube creator space in London. And it's, that's when it started to shift as far as I'm concerned, because what you had was you had, you know, as you mentioned, James, this young generation who just, you know, instinctively know how to use this technology. Um, mm. And as they're coming through the workplace, expect it. They expect to have the, this technology accessible to them. And, um, you know, so going back to YouTube, you know, building these creator spaces for these, these young kids that were creating video content in their bedrooms, you know, and in their homes, you know, YouTube built these spaces so that creators could, these creators could come in and get access to professional equipment, you know, good lighting, build out the great sets and produce much better quality video content and in turn generate more revenue for YouTube. So, you know, that's when I think we started to see the shift. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we're, we're just seeing so much being done now with, with video content and how it plays into, you know, businesses, social media, uh, you know, strategies. It's just, it's, it's ubiquitous now and it is prevalent. Um, and it's the switch that, that you know that I wanted to happen many many years ago, so I'm delighted that we're there now. It just took a bit of time. I'm I'm really interested, Victoria, to get your thoughts on on the future and where we go. But first of all, I want you to put your video conferencing hat back on and and think about what's happened over the last eighteen months. Nobody could have predicted a pandemic where essentially video became the place where businesses existed <laughs> solely for for a, certainly a, a period of time. Like, what what are your thoughts on on that? Well, I think it's just taken, we've just taken it one step further, you know, and I think that, you know, in obviously in the workplace, it's, it was prevalent. I now think it's prevalent with our, our parents and our grandparents and, and, you know, many more people and generations have now got access to the technology because they've had to. 
and um, you know and I think in the workplace with you know we've obviously you know for dream tech we're a digital events company and we have been for many years so it actually wasn't new to us but I think a lot of companies and a lot of businesses struggled with with, with having to make this transition to digital and, and very very quickly um, and that's you know that was a, an advantage for us because we you know we had a lot of customers saying to us you know help we need you to help us create digital events we need you to help us create virtual events and we need you to help us get to that point you know and quickly um and so for us as a business you know we've grown incredibly quickly over the last 18 months um with our existing customers but also with new customers and we're working with you know businesses we're working with a group of hotels in london just to give an example who've never had broadcast capability in their in their hotels and are now saying we've got to have this stuff because our clients are coming in and, and may want that virtual element to their event yeah. so again another huge shift um but you know you know my mother has you know never used video technology and now she knows how to zoom and it's you know it's crazy um and that's the world that we're that we're now living in and i think it's going to continue and long may it continue yeah how, how do you think things will develop then Victoria, like you, you mentioned, DreamTech has a, a, a unit now where, where it's developing its own technology, looking to the future. Maybe if you can give us some insights into, into where you see this going, like what are the technological forces that are going to make video even more embedded kind of in our lives, do you think? Well, it's obviously more accessible um, and that's a good start. But I think in terms of the tech, I mean, you know, we are, we're adapting, we're building out, we're building out products that, that you know, will improve the quality of, of video capture from home. You know, so we're obviously very used to building studios. We have a product called the Broadcast Pod, which is a, a bit like a, a, a photo booth, but it's a video booth. Um, but the new product that we've just built is called the Broadcast Pod Mini. Um, and it's built in a flight case and it has built in integrated Wi-Fi. So the concept is that we ship this off to a speaker's home. And at the moment we're dealing with kind of like C-level execs um, who, who want a better recording or capturing experience. So we're shipping it out to people's homes and, and our technicians are remoting in. All they have to do, the speaker has to do is plug it in, power it up. They don't have to connect it to their Wi-Fi. It has an integrated um, system um, that is all automatic. The technician dials in, up he pops on the screen We've got a nice broadcast quality camera in there with a really nice light and um, we start capturing the content and the video um, and that I think the managed service part of that is quite key because I think you know the consumer or the, the, the exec doesn't necessarily want to have to you know learn how to uh, run the whole system themselves um, so you know we've designed the system to, to be to be fully remotely controllable and accessible but that we're starting to see an uptick in, um, you know, and I, I do think that 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 is where we're going to head. You know, people people want better quality. It needs to be accessible. They like the the, the comfort of having a, an engineer or a technician run it for them, um, and that's personally the direction that we're that we're taking taking the technical division in. 
Really interesting listening to that, Victoria, because I don't want to bore the listeners with stories about our own company, but with <laughs> as, as a company that produces video for clients, James, you'll you'll kind of echo what I'm, you know what I'm about to say, that we've had that struggle with producing remote video over the last 18 months. And it's it's interesting to hear how a company like DreamTech, right at the cutting edge of the of the industry is 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 taking steps to to make that a more permanent thing, you know. Well, um, it has to be a better experience. Sorry to cut you off there, no, ben, no. but you know, not only do people want to produce better quality content, but they want a better experience, and that kind of plays into what we're doing with virtual events and how we're making the ex experience of running a of, of running a virtual event um, just just better. You know, because we've all, I think, we're all suffering from Zoom fatigue. You know, we're all kind of getting, you know, getting the same fe feeling about, oh, God, another virtual event, another conference I could join remotely from home. And and we need to do better. And we need to create better experiences um, because it's here to stay as far as I'm concerned. You know, live events are going to start again, but there will be a, a hybrid or a virtual element to it. Yeah. James th throwing it forward and, and maybe into a world that seems even more kind of sci-fi, but we, we've covered um, Facebook's metaverse idea on, on a pod very recently where they're talking yeah. about how, you know, the living virtually and, and, and communicating in virtual spaces is going to become the norm in the future. Surely the future of video and, and layered on with augmented reality and virtual reality, this is the real kind of direction we're going in, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the, the, Facebook metaverse, I think, <laughs> I think I said in the last one, this, this amalgamation of everything that we do, you know, our work, lives, leisure, social communication, all inside this, this virtual world. Um, I sort of agree with what Victoria said there. I think there's the, the future as I see it, or as I'd like to see it maybe is, is a, is a, is a combination of both. Um, I think that the video and the, the the way communication is now has pretty much saved really the global economy over the last 18 months if you think about it i spoke to a lot of business leaders um in that time and you know the, the question kept coming back what if this had happened 25 years ago like how on earth would would we have gone about business i'm sure i'm sure we'd have found a way um and it's not to say that it was perfect, but more businesses would have gone to the wall, more people would have lost their jobs, you know, more economies would have suffered if we didn't have these communications. So that's an absolute fact. Um, but on the flip side of that, I do think the last 18 months has shown that um, I, the, the Facebook metaverse, in, in my opinion, makes it very, very interesting. It's every single part of your life is is it actually in your home with a, v, with a VR headset on or an AR headset on, right? So. Um, I, I, you know, I'd like to see this this hybrid that Victoria spoke about. I think that's that's the way to go. But the, the metaverse thing is, is not going to go away. I think that they announced this with the, they're going to be hiring ten thousand people just in the EU um, to sort of drive this forward. It's, it's invested fifty million dollars with non-profit groups to uh, probably to ward off some of the, the regulators. Really, you know, it's to to in in their words build this metaverse responsibly. Um, but but the truth is, it's it, it maybe it's not for me, right? It, it, they they think that it will probably take ten to fifteen years to to truly take hold. So if you think about its target audience, really, it's probably a Gen Z audience, which has all its life known being connected through technology within its lives. You know, it's been born with that. It's how they've they've always communicated. Um, so it's 
it's something that maybe I'm not 100% comfortable with because I think that it encourages us to be completely insular when actually the last 18 months has shown that there's there's room for both, right? We we need the critical contact, but actually, you know, being able to communicate remotely and, and through these technologies is an absolutely fantastic asset, which um, which is really coming to its own. Um, but as I said, maybe maybe it's not for me. Maybe maybe the maybe my kids or your kids, Ben or whoever's they are, you know, that is is how they will be connected in their lives, and that's how they'll be comfortable doing it. So, but it's not going away. You know, this is going to take some stopping this Facebook metaverse. They are behind it 100%. I think Mark Zuckerberg said this, he sees Facebook pivoting from a, a social media company to a metaverse company. This isn't some side project. This is absolutely real and central to, to Facebook's approach. Yeah, I mean, and we know it's not a side project, James, because we yeah. it's, a big, it's a big client of ours and, and we've actually been working with them to, to help them build out um, this is sort of the, the build up to this uh, and we've been we've been placing some VR technicians and XR technicians in Facebook over the last year or so. So definitely knew something was coming um, and knew that <laughs> yeah. this was the direction they were heading in. Um, but it's, a, yeah, it's scary. And I think it's the same thing, you know, the same place we were in with video conferencing, waiting for it to take off. And, and I think it's going to take some time. Um, but I think it's quite scary, and I also wonder how the the, the enterprise and the corporate world are gonna are gonna keep up and adapt to this. You know, and I think that's gonna be a, a big challenge for businesses. Yeah, definitely. The word disruption is not gonna go away either. I think there's gonna be certainly a lot more of that. Um, Victoria, I want to change tack a bit now. Uh, let's talk about. Um, obviously, you've grown and and developed into leadership positions over the course of your career. I, I want you to tell us a bit about some of your experience as a female leader in tech like what what has that been like for you um it's been interesting um over the years you know working in a corporate investment bank um in a in a tech role um in the early 2000s was was difficult um you know and i've definitely have been exposed to hostile situations um you know, and I, in terms of tech, you know, I mean, I don't look like your typical nerd. I don't act like a typical nerd. Um, and so I, I think it was quite difficult for some people to, to you know, take me seriously, right? Um, and what's been interesting is all, all my mentors at the time were all men because there weren't other female tech women in tech, and certainly in the, in the company that I was working for. Um, but I think what I realized is that I needed to just be me and be authentic um, and, you know, and not be afraid to, to speak up. Um, and I wasn't. And, um, you know, I had a lot of courage in what I was saying, a lot of courage in my convictions. Um, you know, and it's not about being aggressive or being a pit bull. It was far from it, actually. Um, you know, definitely that experience that I went through definitely shaped me um and and helped me grow as a person and as a leader and i think coming into to dream tech and, and leading this company and building out this business I've, I've done i've done it in a way where i've had knowledge of you know and been through the challenges um and and that's why you know we have a lot of females in dream tech we have we're a very diverse business and we have you know we're a strong female leadership team um 
and I, but I don't think I'd have been able to, to sort of get there unless I'd have gone through what I went through, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So it's very much about being authentic and, and don't let, you know, self-doubt get in your way. Um, and one of the things as well that I've done is build, build a strong network. And that's also very important. And that's a lot of a lot of advice I give to my, you know, the people that I mentor is, you know, make sure you build your network because that's that's where you're going to learn and grow and and um, and experience new things. Yeah, I know your experience has inspired you to create the, the, the or be involved with the Power Women Initiative. Do you want to talk a bit about that and what that is? Yes. So the Power Women Initiative we started a few years ago, actually. Um, we had our very first event in the UK, oh, it must have been about five years ago now. And um, we wanted to start a group that, you know, for our customers, but, but also for our, for our own employees, that, that brought the women, females of the, of the businesses together and just networked. Um, and we brought in a, you know, some great speakers and we were very fortunate to have a lot of support. And um, we started with a very small, intimate event um, and then it grew and grew and we ran more events. And I think the biggest event we ended up running was, was in uh, New York. Um, Facebook offered to host the event for us because obviously we were working with them and strategic partners with them. They were very, very um, supportive and enthusiastic about Power Women and the initiative and what we were trying to do. Um, and we ended up with, I think, over 300 people registered for the event. We had 150 people turn up for the event. And we had some incredible speakers, all who gave their time um, to come and talk about their experiences. Um, and we had themes and, you know, one of the themes was, was women in tech, but we had different themes for different events. Um, and it's just generally been a really, really good experience for uh, the female members of, of, of Dream Tech, you know, enabling them to build their networks, but also the communities that we've that we've run these events in um, and we've been able to open it up to the communities and and um, and we've had we've you know we've had a, a lot of success with it so we want to continue obviously we've been a little bit thwarted by the last 18 months not being able to have a physical event we have run some virtual events we brought in um, a couple of executive coaches um, to come and coach um, some of our um, our members um, on a virtual event, which was again very, you know, incredibly successful. But we do hope to get back to in-person events at some point. And Victoria, what's your assessment on on what, how much progress we have made in in this area? Like, uh, as as someone who's still very much in the industry, and especially in in tech, which gets a lot of negative headlines, rightly so. Um, what where do you think we're at right now today compared to sort of where we have been? Well, I mean, and we've made a huge amount of progress. You know, and, and from when I first started to where we are now, it's, it's in, you know, significant progress, but there's definitely still a way to go. And, um, you know, and I think we're seeing, we're seeing these networking groups pop up, you know, women in code and, you know, and all of those things, which and we're seeing it, I think we're seeing it to sort of start at the right level. You know, so in schools and in colleges, you know, kids, you know, young girls are learning about technology and, and you know, they're being given the opportunity to go into the tech industry. And, and that's that's amazing. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that that's where it needs to start. And that's where the support needs to start and the encouragement. And I think we're starting to see that. But there still is a lot of bias, 
um, you know, and we need to move away from that. We need to, you know, we need to get away from that. Um, but I do, I do think it's heading in the right direction. Yeah. Well, lots more work to be done. And, you know, we, we in our position are trying to highlight it as much as we can, James, right? And, you know, we, we want to um, certainly speak to organisations and people like you who are, who are very much doing stuff on the ground to, to drive change. Well, Victoria, thank you so much. It's been great having you on. James, you got anything else you want to say? Anything you want to throw at Victoria while we've got her? No, just just thanks so much for coming on and sort of sharing your experiences and, um, you know, how, how you've managed to, to blaze a trail. It's, it's been really, really interesting and um, it would be, you know, great to, to cover one of your events when, when they become in person again or, or even online, certainly. So just thanks so much for your time and your insights. It's been, it's been really great. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, guys. What does the rest of your day look like, Victoria? Uh, busy. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll we'll let you crack on with far more important work than this. But um, <laughs> thank you so much, um, listener. Don't go away. James and I will be back for more after this. Find us as Digital Bulletin on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram, and at Digi underscore Bulletin on Twitter. For this month's case study review, James and I are going to revisit our October front cover story with Western Union. James had the opportunity to speak to Harveer Singh, Chief of Data Architects and Global Head of Engineering, to get the inside track on what has been, I think we can say, a fairly busy couple of years for him and the financial services multinational. We're going to hear from Harveer in a minute, but James, maybe first you can give us a bit of an overview of the scale of change undertaken by Western Union here. I mean, because this is a company in a bank that's really as old as money itself, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It's one of the... It's definitely one of what you call the sort of legacy uh, businesses, organisations within financial services. It's known worldwide. I think everywhere I've ever been, and I, you know, I'm not saying I've been all, you know, to every country. But I'm pretty well travelled, and I think I'm, I'm pretty sure that there's been a Western Union um, at every location that I've ever been in. And I, I think you know, millions of people use it every year for hundreds of thousands of employees, and and as as a company that's not one of these you know the the new entrance to the financial market it has all of those legacy issues to deal with and that's particularly true of it of its technologies it's as with most companies like this um always run its systems its technologies on premises and in, in big data centers and big data warehouses um and over the the last couple of years it, it's looked at that and the, the issues that, that that brings, you know, building on top of old technologies, and, uh, and we know about the sort of interop interoperability issues that has. It decided that it was going to, you know, take on this this uh, cloud migration program, which is what we spoke to to, to Javier about. I think at the end of the the main video, he talks about um, what's interesting about Western Union is, is its scale, and that's where its opportunity is. And it, you know, it's very much. It, in in one sense, it's it's quite similar to a lot of the tech transformation stories that that were written. Um, in that it's a it's a cloud migration from on prem to to a public cloud, but it's that scale and size of Western Union which is really at its core and why it's a, a different story, if you like. Yeah, it was, and it was a big enough project to begin to the, to begin with. But then you consider the effect of COVID nineteen. Now here's our first clip with Harvey talking about what impact the pandemic had on the transformation. COVID came and it just accelerated our journey. You know, we wanted to do this in three years and we were forced to do it in 18 months. So we started our journey last year uh, 
just pre-COVID when we started to migrate off our on-prem environment into cloud. And what we realized that in order to keep up with the demand for digital, which is what COVID pushed us into, we had to do it faster. We had to make 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 sure that we can accelerate and we have to scale. Our digital capacity, which was on the on-prem environment, which was supposed to not go out of capacity until 2022, was going out of capacity in 2020 itself, right? So we had to really, really accelerate this journey to migrate our digital capacity onto the cloud. Sounds like a, a pretty urgent situation Harvey faced there. Now, James, you spoke to him. He, he has been a key player in this, hasn't he? And it seems like he was given a lot of autonomy to sort of decide strategically and certainly in some areas the direction and to build the teams the way he wanted to as well. Yeah, definitely. I think it was a pressing priority. As he, as he said, it was um, they thought they were OK in 2022 in terms of the capacity of their, of their data centres and um, the you know, one of the many effects of the pandemic was that these digital services were uh, were lent some more and more, and um, they realised that it was probably, you know, would have been quite an interesting wanting to be a fly on the wall within Western Union. And, oh, okay, we're going to hit this capacity by twenty twenty. <laughs> um, so they, you know, did the, the the tech transformation program was was cut from a three year program to a to an eighteen month program. Um, I think that that Harvey. He, you know, he came across to me as this, uh, very much a self-start leader, and he's got a really varied background um, at companies like EY and Deloitte and IBM. I think Accenture's on there as well. So he's got a lot of expertise in in business transformation and tech management and, and collaboration and, and teams. So he w- he was brought in off the back of that, you know, that shifting timeframe that, um, that 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 he spoke about. Um, and it's really trusted, I guess, to to accelerate that. Um, there was a recognition of, within Western Union of this need to to accelerate the transformation, um, and I think they recognised that experience he had to to build complementary teams that he speaks about in the article that he brought in, you know, teams from outside um, the organisation, often from from consultancy roles. Um, he brought in industry experts, and there was a lot of skill within Western Union, as you'd expect. And he talks about building a an army um to to basically deliver this this transformation and and as with a lot of the stories that we've told in especially in a in a time frame like this there was a lot of there was a lot of elements of sort of agile working in there as well and i don't think you, i don't think you can really go about a program like this without doing that anymore so i think that he was entrusted to do it because they probably recognized that you know he was the man they they thought could, that could come in and do it and yeah, it feels like he was given a lot of autonomy to go out there and sort of like a like a superstar football manager, you know, implement his blueprint for success. And I think it's fair to say that he did a fairly decent job of it. Yeah, it always amazes me with these with these transformation stories, especially one like this where things are happening so quickly because of an outside force like the pandemic. How they managed to keep keep things going day to day, like business continuity, must be a huge challenge. I think Harvest spoke about that, didn't he, in the article? Yeah, he said. So obviously, that whilst you're implementing this, this sort of cloud platform or cloud environment, you, you're going to be running on there. Um, but at the same time, you have to keep your on-prem environment going and your backups of on-prem going as well. So you, you've got this almost sort of 
three tier system, and it's fair to say that's very, very expensive at a company of the scale of, of Western Union. Um, and there was this this need to deliver both speed and quality, and that's that's a pretty difficult that's a, a pretty difficult conundrum, isn't it? Um, so he he sort of stressed that he had the the support from the higher ups, um, but he also did admit there were certain times to stay awake at night and thought. These costs are these costs are spiraling. We're we're on a we're on a really tight schedule here. And he did say that you know sometimes he did say, okay, this is going to be an interesting meeting with our CFO tomorrow, for example. Um, but I think obviously the the proof's in the pudding, and he's um, they've managed to deliver it, and they've got this goal that they they speak about of getting all their core systems to the cloud by the end of the year. Um, yeah. But no, I, I completely agree. I'm I'm not sure I'd quite want the pressure of keeping all those systems and budgets in check at, at once. But th- I don't think that's exclusive to, to Western Union. As you said, the pandemic has acted as this driver and um, companies have had to get their skates on. Yeah. Now, another interesting element to this story is how Western Union is dealing with the rise of cryptocurrencies and, and the wider decentralization of the industry. Here is Harvey talking about Western Union's involvement with the World Economic Forum on this subject. Western Union is part of the World Economic Forum and is a very, very close participant when it comes to helping decision-making and policy-making across large leaders because of our presence and how we influence the local economies across the world. As part of this initiative, we have a subgroup, for example, which is called Central Bank Digital Currency. Now, the Central Bank Digital Currency is different than the digital assets that people are talking about. This is not cryptocurrency. It's not something that is that is being mined. It is more stable, something that you know uh, will be used to perform instant settlements across the board and provide liquidity to different banks through local reserve banks. So I was very fortunate enough to sit on the same table with some large leaders who represent how we want to go forward in taking part in, let's say, a digital dollar, for example. James, I always think it's really interesting to get insights from a 170-year-old company on on something that is fundamentally changing their industry, like like blockchain, like like digital currencies. Given what Harvey said there in the work with the WEF, that Western Union are clearly embracing the potential of blockchain in financial services, aren't they? Both through that, and I think there was some stuff in there about stopping fraud as well using using that technology. Yeah, I think that increasingly companies like uh, Western Union are going to sort of, they're going to have to embrace them because if they don't, they'll, they'll they'll find themselves overtaken by these newer, more agile companies that have been born in the digital age and, and so are more prepared to you know to take on those technologies and believe in them. So he spoke about he he was really open about how he sort of sees the future of financial services and payments. And as you said, Western Union is a partner of the World Economic Forum, so it has a really important influential voice in how payment systems of the future look how that ecosystem looks and how to make payments more you know, a lot easier and stable because we take it for granted here that we can just ping each other money right but um a lot of time in, in the developing world it's not that easy there, there isn't the, the infrastructure there and that still needs to be built in a way and um so what what talks about sort of central bank currencies and how he sees that idea of the digital dollar being ripe especially within sort of western unions systems and its vendors and partners it was really interesting like you say to get that that perspective from somebody who's you know central to a what you would call a a more traditional financial services player 
but one that is, is definitely thinking, you know, is a lot more forward thinking than definitely would have been even been five years ago, I think. Um, and like he also spoke about, you know, the, the blockchain is this um, thing they refer to in financial services, KYC, which is know your customer, which is it, it is about when someone's speaking a lot of the time cross border payments, you know, just ensuring that it's a legitimate payment and the person that's going to isn't, you know, part of, you know, it's something that's illegal or, or nefarious or anything like that. And because a lot, a lot of the frustration is a lot of the, the time when you when you're having to work at getting that information off people so you can work out you know, your customer. A lot of the times that's the same process going again and again with blockchain. Obviously, we know that it can be held um, in a decentralized location and all the information can be held there. And so that process doesn't have to keep you to because if, if there's any if there's any suggestion that a, a, pay, a, a payment has been made for uh, illegal means that can hold it off for days, weeks. And a lot of the time it isn't. Uh, but, you know, these, these checks will automatically something will happen and it will be held up. So there's definitely a recognition as well that, that blockchain, you know, can act as a, a sort of facilitator for quicker cross cross border payments um, and and really sort of trying to eradicate that, that fraudulent element of it as well. Great stuff, James. Well, that's all we have time for this month, folks. And if you want to read the article on Western Union's technology transformation and indeed watch some of the videos on the topic, then you can find everything you need over on digitalbulletin.com. On our sister platform, Tech for Good, we've just launched series three of the Tech for Good podcast, where I speak to Fred Werner about the UN's AI for Good program. That's well worth a listen. And as James mentioned earlier, we have a brand new issue of the Tech for Good magazine for you to tuck into as well. The final act for me is to thank James. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Really enjoyed it today. And a big thanks to you too, listener. We'll be back to do it all again in a month's time. Goodbye. That was the Digital Bulletin Podcast. Listen and subscribe to a range of podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Plug in for news, features and case studies on the very latest in enterprise technology and digital transformation.